You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. If you need a Bible this morning, go ahead and raise your hands and uh, we'll put one into your hands. We've got some ushers and greeters in the aisles. We'll be happy to pass those out. It'll be much more enjoyable for you as we go along in the scriptures. And as you get your Bibles out, we are going to be in Luke chapter 1 this morning. Luke chapter 1. We're beginning a series called, So This is Christmas. So This is Christmas. And really beginning to ponder... What is Christmas to us? What is Christmas to us? And I think as we head into this season, it's good for us to reflect that we may be able as Christian people or church-going people to say, hey, Christmas is all about Jesus is the reason for the season. Yes, that's true. We know that in our brains, but how do we actually get that to transfer into our lives? Because if we look at our thought process, or if we look at the things that consume our time during the Christmas season, here is what I would say Christmas might be about for many of us. Christmas might be about stress. Anybody relate? It might be incessant Christmas music that won't leave your head, depending on where you work and that track that is playing over and over again. It might be preparing to host friends or family, some whom you love and others not so much. It may be dreading the loneliness or the pain of broken relationships or loss in this season. It could be gift giving or gift receiving or last minute shopping. It could be time off. How many of you look forward to time off over the Christmas holiday? How many of you are petrified of all the work that will be there waiting when you return? Whatever often consumes our thoughts, whatever often takes up the space in our minds, in our hearts when it comes to the Christmas season, that's usually what defines Christmas for us. And as we unpack the biblical story, both the one that you probably know and then maybe some others that you don't, the idea is to be able to reflect and say, so this is Christmas. In Luke chapter 1, verse 26, we see the divine announcement given to Mary. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. We're going to read our passage this morning and then unpack it together. Now in the sixth month... The angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. 
And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who is called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed for her. For many of you in here, that story is not new. It's something that you either have covered before in your own time or that you receive kind of at every Christmas season. But here are some things that might be helpful as we head into this Christmas series, specifically looking at the Christmas story. The last book of the Old Testament, which is called Malachi, was written in about 397 B.C. And between 397 B.C. and 4 A.D., when the Gospel of Matthew began, or when John the Baptist, Elizabeth, and Zechariah were told that they would have a son, there are 400 years of silence from the Lord. How many of you... Uh, in your marriages, you go one day of silence and you know it's not bueno, right? Imagine 400 years of silence from God. And we get a lot of understanding about what happens in the history of this Middle Eastern region during this time. The Persians, the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Syrians... The Maccabeans and then the Romans all rule throughout this time period. A lot of leadership changing hands in the region, a lot of instability. And at every turn, God's nation, Israel, the Jewish people, are found oppressed over and over again. And by the time we get to the Gospel of Luke, by the time this divine announcement comes to Mary we see that the Jews are under the oppression and under the authority of the Roman Empire, one of the greatest empires from an authority standpoint that the world had ever seen. And yet even within this Roman Empire, the Jews were allowed to worship Yahweh. They were allowed to worship God. And the Jews had their own little power structure happening in Israel at this time. Some of these groups you may have heard of, some might be new to you, but how many of you know or have heard of the group of the Pharisees before? The Pharisees were religious leaders who had strict adherence to the Jewish law and they put it into practice in everyday life. They became so obsessed with the law that it even became salvation for them in order to do good or to earn God's favor. We also know that there was a group called the Sadducees. The Sadducees were largely the priestly sect of the religious leaders of Judaism. And they tended to be more concerned about politics and life here on earth and what was going on for them specifically not necessarily looking ahead into the kingdom of God there was also another group known as the zealots and the zealots were nonconformists as a matter of fact they were violent nonconformists 
They opposed Rome and also the Herodian rule of these Tetrarch rulers within Judea in which they would execute certain leaders or they would carry out certain missions and this was their way of revolting against the political and governmental powers of the day. The Herodians were the fake kings of the Jews. They ruled under Rome. They were servants to the Roman Empire. And they stepped on the Jews just enough and bowed to Rome just enough to hold their power in order to live a lavish lifestyle. And then finally, the Essenes. Uh, The Essenes were a religious group that withdrew from society in order to hold on to their piety. They kind of saw society going to pot. They didn't think that it was going well. And so they left and isolated themselves in order to try to live out their own faith and doctrine. We see a lot of agenda within the Jewish region at this time. And isn't it interesting that God doesn't start with any of these groups. Who does he come to? He comes to a teenage girl. Now, teenage girls back then and teenage girls now, quite a bit different culturally, but how much agenda does a teenager have? Some of you parents are like, there's actually a big agenda, (laughs) right? (laughs) For Mary, We learned that in these first couple of verses, it says in the sixth month, this would have been in the August, September time frame, the angel Gabriel was sent by who? Sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. We get a few really important points just right here at the beginning. Uh, We have a little map of Nazareth, and uh, it's about a 90-mile journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem. You can see the little path here that Mary and Joseph would have taken from Nazareth to Bethlehem. This is actually a Google Google Maps page. This isn't an ancient map. This is now. Um, It would take you 30 hours, 31 hours to walk, but I think that's if you're non-pregnant and not on a donkey. Um, Here's what's interesting about Nazareth. It's never mentioned in the Old Testament. It was such a small and insignificant town that it's never mentioned in the Old Testament and outside of Jesus being from Nazareth, it's really never mentioned again in the New Testament except for in the Gospels identifying where Jesus is from. And part of the reason is, is because it's, you can see there's the Sea of Galilee to the right on the screen. It's about 12 miles from the Sea of Galilee, and there's very little water in that region. This little town had one well, and it wasn't even a good well, and so there just wasn't a large population. It was unknown. It was obscure. And yet God chooses not to send the angel Gabriel to the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Zealots or the Herodians or the Essenes. He decides to send the angel Gabriel to Nazareth to a young woman named Mary. If you know the angel Gabriel, um, he's mentioned at least once or twice in the same book in the Old Testament. If you read Daniel's chapter 8 and 9, Gabriel appears to tell the prophet Daniel of what is to come in regards to the power structure or the kings that will come after Babylon. And it is interesting because Daniel is given a vision of the Greek Empire, of the Persian Empire, of Rome. And here we find Gabriel being sent by God to a woman named Mary. 
Verse 27 says specifically she was a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Uh, as just a reminder, throughout this Christmas series, we're going to do a lot of looking back to the Old Testament. There's a lot of Old Testament prophecy which foretold of the coming Messiah, in which Jesus, in order to qualify to be the Messiah, must have fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. And so something to keep in mind as we go through this series is that the Old Testament always points us to Jesus. The Old Testament always points us to Jesus. And here in verse 27, we're reminded twice that Mary is a virgin. This was important. This was essential. So much so that Luke in his gospel chooses to say it two times. She had not been with a man. She had not known a man sexually. And we see here that it says she was betrothed to a man named Joseph. Um, in the Jewish marriage process, there were three different stages. There was the engagement. And engagement was different than what we have now. Now you date somebody. You fall in love. You think they're good looking. Hopefully they think you're good looking and you go through some premarital counseling right everybody and then you get married um, in the engagement period for Jews it was usually the parents arranging a marriage determining what would be a good match for the family the second stage of a Jewish marriage would be the betrothal and the betrothal was an actual ceremony where there would be the repeating of vows promises made, a covenant of marriage made, but it would still be about another year before the groom came for his bride. So there would be no sexual relationship or consummation of the marriage during the betrothal, but simply the vows made, and these were such strong vows that if the marriage decided to be put off during the betrothal period, it would require a certificate of divorce. And then the third stage would be the marriage. When the groom would come for his bride, they would consummate the marriage together and live as one flesh. And we see here that Mary is betrothed to a man whose name is Joseph. And what's the important information that we get here about Joseph? He is from the line of David. We'll talk about that a little bit later of why that's important information. Verse 28. And having come in, the angel Gabriel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Uh, imagine Mary. She's in her one-bedroom house in this obscure place, and the angel Gabriel shows up. Now, we don't get a ton of information of what angels are like, except that they are incredibly bright, the Shekinah glory of God radiating from them. And remember, Gabriel lived in the presence of God. Gabriel also would have probably been a very intimidating figure as God's angels, his messengers, are also described as his warriors of light. And Gabriel shows up in the house and says, Rejoice! Rejoice! And here's what I love. 
There is intentionality right from the onset that Gabriel wants to communicate. This is a good visit. And we know that for this reason. When you go to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, which if you were just with us through our Unexpected Messiah series, we spent over two years in the Gospel of Matthew. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary go to the tomb to see the body of Jesus. And when they don't find him, they are met by an angel. And an angel says, hey, he is not here. He is risen. Go and tell the disciples. And as they're on their way, who meets them? It's Jesus. And what's the first word that he says to them? He says, rejoice. Rejoice. There is cause for celebration. And the angel Gabriel specifically says, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you and blessed are you among women. Now we're going to unpack this just a little bit because it is important because depending on the tradition that you grew up in or if you grew up in the Catholic Church, much is made of Mary. As a matter of fact, we would even say that in the Catholic Church, Mary is venerated to a status of worship. And what's important to note here is it is certain that Gabriel says, hey, rejoice. You are highly favored, Mary. You are blessed among women. And it's true. No one ever, not then before or not now, will ever have the opportunity to be the earthly mother of Jesus. She was certainly blessed. And yet notice that as Gabriel continues the message, who is the message about? It's about Jesus. It's about the coming son. It's about the Messiah. It's not about Mary. She is blessed among women to be able to carry the Messiah in her womb. And yet make no mistake, it has nothing to do with how holy she was. Think about God leaving heaven and coming to earth. How could we ever think that any single person with a sinful nature could be worthy of such an honor? It didn't have to do with Mary's merit. It didn't have to do with Mary's good works. It had to do with a humble spirit in which God was moving through Mary and he simply chose her. And what's amazing about the scriptures, whether it's in Ephesians chapter 1 or Ephesians chapter 2, we are also highly favored. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what God has done for us through his son, which then makes us highly favored. Mary is no different. Not somebody to worship, but certainly someone who is blessed by the Lord to be called in such a way. And I can only imagine that Mary was certainly shocked. We see in verse 29, it says that, but when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying. That's probably an understatement. Probably means she was a little nervous, a little scared, wondering what in the world was going on. And here is what we know that Gabriel is bringing. The virgin birth announces the fulfillment of God's rescue plan. The virgin birth announces the fulfillment of God's rescue plan. Notice what Gabriel tells her. He says in verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. 
and behold, or look and see, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. It's interesting here because we're going to learn in just a little bit what's miraculous, what stands out is the conception of Jesus. But by all rights, the birth of Jesus was no different than our birth. Jesus was carried to full term as far as we know. He didn't come out with a beard and long hair and blue eyes, right? That would have been really scary for Mary. He came out as a little baby. And we see that Gabriel is letting Mary know you're going to conceive a son, but the conception is going to be different. It's not going to be done by human effort. It won't be done by a man and a woman coming together as one flesh in marriage and producing a child. You will have a different conception experience, but you can expect the birth to be normal or natural. We're told that the angel Gabriel gives Mary specific instructions. I want you to name him Jesus. Uh, Jesus was not an uncommon name during that time. Um, it was fairly regular. And it comes from the Hebrew, Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua, which means deliverer or rescuer. God was intentional about the name that his son Jesus would have. And when we think about the virgin birth announcing the fulfillment of God's rescue plan, here is how we know this is the fulfillment of God's rescue plan. Genesis chapter 3, I've got it up on the screens for you. And just to give you a little context before we get into the text, if you remember, within the first two chapters, what has God done in Genesis? <clears throat> Are we awake this morning? <laughs> what has God done in the first two chapters? Created the heavens and the earth. He's created mankind. He's made both man and woman, Adam and Eve, and they're living in paradise in a garden called Eden. And what we know about Eden is it was perfect. God had provided everything that they needed, so much so that the scripture tells us they were naked. And not just in the physical sense, although that's true, which appeals to a perfect climate, uh, never getting cold never getting sick but most importantly being completely open and vulnerable not being afraid of someone seeing you for who you are not needing to cover things up not needing to use fig leaves or Louis Vuitton or driving the car that you drive or the bank account that you have not trying to post stuff on social media to show that your life is this when really it's not in the Garden of Eden Everything was provided for Adam and Eve, and they knew nothing of sin or evil. And in that garden, God gives them one command. He says, you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day that you do, you will surely die. And we know the story. Eve is at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, having a conversation with the serpent who is that ancient one, the devil, Satan himself. And he deceives Eve by twisting God's word. And the scripture tells us that Eve saw the fruit and it looked good for eating. And so she took some and desired that it would make her wise. And she ate it and then handed the fruit to her husband, who happened to also be right there, not doing his job, by the way. And he ate it too. 
And immediately both of their eyes were opened and they felt ashamed and realized they were naked. We know that God in this perfect garden would come every evening to walk with Adam and Eve. I don't even know what that looks like specifically, but God lived in unity with Adam and Eve so much so that he would physically come in his presence to walk with Adam and Eve every evening. And on that evening, we know that God comes and Adam and Eve are hiding. And even though God knows the answer, he says, hey, Adam, where are you? And Adam says, hey, I I hid myself. I was afraid because I was naked. And the shame, the sin, death has now entered into the world because of the choice that Adam and Eve made. We know that by both the Old Testament and New Testament scriptures, that weight, that burden of sin entering into the world rests upon Adam's shoulders. And it is not Adam that can save or undo what he's done. And so God provides all the way at the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, the revelation of the beginnings of his rescue plan. As God curses the serpent or Satan, he says this. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, meaning you've deceived Adam and Eve, you are cursed more than all the animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. The form that Satan took was the form of a serpent, and the serpent's curse is to crawl in the dust for the rest of its existence. And then in verse 15, God directly addresses Satan. He says, and I will cause hostility or enmity, if you have the New King James Version, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This is the first foreshadowing, the first promise of the coming Messiah. That through the seed of Eve, through her descendants, through birthing children, that one would be raised up to become the savior of humanity. Now, just a bit of a side note, when Adam and Eve have their first son, Cain, who do you think they thought Cain would be? Oh, how discouraging. How heartbreaking. To watch Cain kill his brother Abel and to realize, oh no, he is not the Messiah. And we see the effects of sin from this point on in the scripture wreaking havoc. And it's been from the beginning that Satan is always trying to thwart and destroy God's rescue plan. I'm not going to go into great details in each one of these, but here's just a few scenarios that reveal where God is at work. Satan is also at work. Think about Genesis chapter 6 when it says that the sons of God or these fallen angels come to earth and they begin to make children with the daughters of men. Satan trying to corrupt the human race to stop the seed of the woman, a pure human line from happening and bringing about the savior. Think about Pharaoh and his attempt to stunt Israel's growth by killing all the male children who were being born because the nation of Israel was becoming too powerful in Egypt. Think about Haman's attempt 
in the book of Esther to literally and utterly destroy all of the Jews in Babylon. Think about Jesus' own birth, and when Herod finds out, what does he do? He sends out an edict into all the region of Galilee to have every male child two years and younger murdered. From the beginning, Satan has always been trying to stop the fulfillment of God's rescue plan. And yet the beauty is, is that the Messiah has come. This is what Christmas is about. It's not just about saying the name of Jesus. It's not just about saying Jesus is the reason for the season. It's a recognition of our utter depravity and hopelessness without a Messiah and Savior who is promised by God from the very moment humanity messed up. From the very moment when sin and death entered into the world. And so the question is, why does this matter to us? It matters to us because it tells us we are not the Savior. Now, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you already know? Yeah, I know I'm not the Savior. But how many of us often find ourselves trying to fix things that we cannot fix? Placing burdens on ourselves that we cannot carry. Trying to step into a situation where there's broken relationship or some kind of failed attempt in order to be the one that fixes it. And we just can't. It matters to us because we need the reminder we are not the Savior. Think about this in Jesus' day, those five groups that we covered. The Pharisees, no one worked harder than the Pharisees. I think the Pharisees often, for good reason, they get a bad rap. But we have to remember, these were the boots on the ground. These were the pastors of their day who were out among the people trying to teach them how to abide by 613 Jewish laws as it applied to their everyday life. They had good intentions, but they placed heavy burdens on people which they could not lift. And the Pharisees wouldn't lift the burdens to help them either. It became a works-based salvation that was being taught. And no one was ever good enough. How discouraging. For the Sadducees, 400 years of silence from God. Think about our own culture and our own world. Are things getting better or are they getting worse? It's a dumb question, right? You don't even need to answer. We're going downhill quickly. And yet we're still called to make disciples. And yet we still know God is at work to bring people to himself. And that could be in individuals. That could be in communities, possibly in nations. I don't know. But I do know that until Jesus returns, his desire is for none to perish and for all to turn and repent so they can have everlasting life. And for the Sadducees, these were mostly the priestly men who were fulfilling that intermediary area between God and the people had become all about politics, about promoting themselves. As a matter of fact, the Sadducee group didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead and they didn't believe in angels, which is a bit ironic because Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to raise from the dead. I'm going to send angels as messengers. Have we gotten our lives so wrapped up in politics that that becomes our savior? Trump 2024 or whoever might fill that position. 
we think about the zealots, these were men who thought they were doing God's work by killing Roman officials. And yet what they found themselves doing was simply exercising bloodthirsty murder in order to try to bring about the Messiah. This is important for us. It's not our good works. It's not our own righteousness. It's not how many times we go to church. It's not how good we are as a parent. We cannot bring in or usher in Jesus. That is fully the work of our heavenly father. He simply calls us to walk in obedience. We are not responsible for bringing Jesus back for his second coming. And yet sometimes we live a life like if I just did good enough, if I just worked hard enough, then we could bring Jesus back. Only the father knows the day or the hour. Think about the Herodians. These were a ruling class among the Jewish people who had sold themselves out to the world. They had gotten in bed with Rome. They were servants of Rome, stepping on their own people to maintain their lifestyle in order to keep the car that they could drive, the house that they wanted, the bank account with a certain number of zeros at the end, and they were willing to compromise to do it. And then last but not least, you have the Essenes. This group that looked at society and went, well, we should probably get out of here. And guys, I was so tempted to say this is the group that moves to Idaho, but I wouldn't. (laughs) That's a joke for all of our Idaho listeners who've moved to Idaho in the last six months. But in reality, do we not have a tendency to run from our problems and try and isolate ourselves in our little bubble so we don't have to deal with what's going on in the world? Jesus says, do not be of the world, but you must be in it. You are called to be a light. You are called to be a testimony of his love. You're called to make disciples in the darkness. We can't simply just remove ourselves from everything that's going on, and yet we're also called not to participate in the sinfulness of our day. The fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's rescue plan matters to us because this is Christmas. And it's so easy to get wrapped up in all the other stuff. No pun intended. You see how I did that there? If you're awake in 8.30, stay awake. It's so easy for us to get wrapped up in all the busyness, in all the frustration, in all the distraction. And yet Christmas is the literal and yearly reminder of God's fulfillment of his rescue plan through his son, Jesus Christ. We also see that the virgin birth announces a holy and human savior, a holy and human savior. In Isaiah chapter 7, which by the way was written 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. A sign of what? A sign of his fulfillment of his rescue plan. A sign that the Messiah has come. A sign that no matter how long God's been silent or how distant you feel like he's been, he always does what he says he's going to do. He will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel simply means God with us. 
This was prophesied 700 years in advance before Jesus was born. And what I love in this interaction between Gabriel and Mary, I mean, we have to just put this into context. We're reading it from the Bible, but imagine Mary. She's sitting there as a teenage young girl, and Gabriel's like, guess what? You're going to have a kid, and it's going to be different than like most people have kids, but we'll kind of talk about that in a little bit. But here's the cool thing. He's going to be the son of God. Can you imagine trying to process that as a PhD student, let alone a teenager? And so she asks a practical question, and I love this aspect about our relationship with God. There is a difference between testing him or demanding things from him. But by no means, don't think that you can't come to God with questions. God, what would you like me to do? God, am I supposed to speak to this person or not speak to this person? Do you want me in this relationship? Is it honoring to you? And look at what Mary says in verse 33, or excuse me, 34. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? Good question. Absolutely. It's a great question. She goes, hey, I've never been in a sexual relationship before. I'm in the betrothed stage. I'm not married to Joseph yet. How's this going to happen? And Gabriel explains in verse 35. And here's the explanation that Mary gets. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. If you missed Pastor Dave's sermon a few weeks ago on the difference between with, in, and upon, I encourage you to go back. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Well, thank you, Gabriel. That explains it all. It's like trying to explain the Trinity. Yes, we worship one God and three persons, and every kid's like... But in my math class that you're doing with me, one plus one plus one equals three. Yes, I know. And Mary gets this explanation in which she's simply told the conception will happen with the Holy Spirit coming upon you so that the power of God will overshadow you. There is no sexuality involved in this conception of Jesus. It is simply God's power moving in Mary's body through the Holy Spirit to conceive Jesus for the purpose, as verse 35 says, that he will be the Holy One who is to be born and he will be the Son of God. It's amazing to see how God is intermixing the fragility of humanity with the foreverness of one who has existed in all eternity. Very difficult to fathom that God himself would come as a newborn baby. If you've held a newborn baby lately, or if you remember that, what can newborn babies do for themselves? Literally nothing. We used to call our little newborns, they're just like amoebas. They just, wherever you go, they have to go with you. There's nothing they can do on their own. And that God would come in such a humble, fragile form, and yet also still be fully God is difficult for us to understand. 
Maybe one of the best ways that I can talk about how Jesus came in this humble form, um, whether it's through ESPN, whether it's celebrity news, you know, the things that all you guys are spending your time on. Um, have you ever seen someone who's popular, famous, makes a lot of money, and you hear about something that they've done, and you go, wow, that's amazing. I'm shocked that they would stoop so low to do that. Um, how many of you remember the actor slash race car driver slash entrepreneur Paul Newman? Um, if you don't know him, that's because you're probably around my age. Uh, he's the salad dressing guy. Um, he's the one that's on the pasta sauces. Um, something interesting about Paul Newman was that towards the end of his life, he actually started developing salad dressings and he would take old wine bottles and he would fill them with salad dressing and give them out as gifts to his friends. And yet his friends kept coming back and saying, hey, this is really good. We would like some more. And so he developed an organization called Newman's Own. And every single penny that they make through Newman's Own goes directly to charity. To date, $570 million through Newman's Own, literally salad dressings and pasta, have gone to people in need. Now we look at that and we go, wow, that's amazing. A movie star with that kind of clout, a race car driver with that kind of adrenaline rush and power, and yet he chose to dedicate his life and leave a legacy of giving back to others. We may look at that and go, wow, that's, that's really incredible. I have some new respect for Paul Newman. But it pales in comparison to what God has done for us. The fact that he left his throne in heaven in order to come down and to be with people like me, people like you, a broken and dying world. And we know that because of the virgin birth, we see that he is holy, which means he was born without a sinful nature. He did not inherit the nature of Adam because he was not conceived with a human man. Even though Joseph was his earthly father, it was not Joseph's seed that conceived him. It was the seed of the Holy Spirit so that therefore the child could be called holy and yet he was also fully human in every way. I was talking to a friend this week and she had just mentioned some hard things going on in her life and then she made the comment and yet when I think of what Jesus has done for me when I think of him leaving heaven and coming to earth, when I think of him being unjustly and unfairly put on the cross, even in the midst of my hardship, I can't go, this just isn't fair because I have a savior who relates to me. How many of you, when you're going through trial and hardship, find comfort in people who have experienced similar things before you who can walk alongside of you, who can encourage you and build you up and pray with you? In Hebrews chapter 4, we're told we do not have a high priest who is Jesus, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In Jesus' holiness, he removes the pressure for us to be perfect. 
or to attempt to be the perfect husband or wife or to attempt to be the perfect parent or the perfect employee or employer. His holiness removes that burden from our lives. And yet how many of us often strive to be perfect and how many of us are harder on ourselves and beat ourselves up when we're not perfect. And here's what I know about myself. I'm harder on myself than anyone is. And why am I so darn surprised when I find out I'm not perfect? Why is that? Because we have pride in our life. And it may not be this outward pride where we walk around saying we're amazing, but there is an inward sinful pride according to the nature that we're born with that goes, gosh, I should never mess up. And God goes, that's why I sent my son, because it's what you do. And the more you die to your flesh and the more I'm raised in you, the more you look like me and God's holiness. He removes the pressure for us to be perfect And in his humanness, we come to him for comfort. We come to him for compassion. We can even come to him for conviction. David says, search my heart, O Lord, if there's any iniquity in me that I can't see because of my failedness, reveal it to me for you are holy and I am not. Many people carry heavy burdens during this season of Christmas. For some of you, Pastor Dave and I know your stories. We know your firsts of what you're going through. We know that this will be a difficult season without a loved one or in a broken relationship. But the beauty is, is that more than Pastor Dave and I, more than anyone, Jesus understands our hearts. He relates to us. He knows what it feels like. So therefore, God provided what we needed the most, not what we wanted the most, what we needed the most. And this is Christmas. Every gift we give or every gift we receive is to be a reminder of the ultimate gift that we needed. One of the things I put on my Christmas list this year, man, how many of you, your Christmas list has changed from the time you were like 15 to now? (laughs) Um, on my Christmas list was a leaf blower on my wife's Christmas list with a trash can that works. Cause we have one of those step on ones, but it doesn't like come up anymore. Those are things we want. And technically in some practical ways, some things that we need, but it's not what we truly need. And this is what Christmas is about. It's a season of remembrance of being reminded Oh my goodness, we've been given everything we need in the fulfillment of God's rescue plan. A Messiah who is both holy and human. Gabriel also provides some other important detail about the lineage of Jesus on Joseph's side. Look at verse 32 with me. The angel Gabriel says, he will be great. No one is greater than Jesus. That's an understatement, right? No one has had an influence on the world like Jesus. No one sells more books than Jesus. The Bible remains the number one selling book since the printing press. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. The virgin birth announces the king who will reign forever. The virgin birth announces the king who will reign forever. 
This is so important for us in a world that is clamoring for power, for presidential position, for nuclear weapons, for global vaccination. What king are we going to bow our knee to? We know that the answer is Jesus. How are we doing in living that out? Because it's one thing to know it. It's another thing to apply it in our life. And think about how difficult this is. We're constantly bombarded with advertisements. We're constantly bombarded with lifestyle choices, with occupational decisions. And all of them are telling us that we should bow the knee here or here or here. And yet Jesus sends a king who will reign forever because he alone is where we should bow our knee. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. This comes from a covenant, an unconditional covenant that God makes with King David. God is speaking to David and he says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers. In other words, David, you're not the Messiah. You're not the savior of Israel. You're a king and a man after my own heart, but you're going to die. I will set up your seed after you, meaning a descendant of yours who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. <coughs> he shall build a house for my name. In part, this is King Solomon who will build the temple, but the eternal house and dynasty that God is talking about is the foreshadowing, the looking ahead to Jesus. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever this matters to us greatly because we are being asked in this world to serve and bow our knee to many things think about it the death of jesus Pilate knows jesus is innocent and yet he bows to the crowd to maintain his reputation the pharisees they in the fact bow to Caesar by saying, hey, we have no king but Caesar, crucify this man in order to appease Pilate. The crowd that is stirred up by the Pharisees bows to their religious leaders. And even the apostles, those disciples of Jesus, they bow to fear in the moment. But there's one who doesn't, which is very interesting. It's the thief on the cross who had mocked Jesus for a time and then in his final moments bows his knee to King Jesus. And isn't it interesting that when we are put in uncomfortable places, that when we're faced with our own humanity and mortality, when we see our sin for what it is, it's in those moments where it becomes much easier to bow our knee to King Jesus. And yet it's those moments that the world wants to keep us from, to help us not have to live uncomfortable lives, to not have to confront our sin, to be able to live the way that we want to. And that is the enemy's distraction from getting us to bow down to Jesus on a daily basis. Who or what will you bow to this Christmas? We know it in our heads. But are we putting it into practice in our lives? Are we taking time in God's word, in prayer, in devotion, in fellowship with others, centered and founded on God's word that reminds us that his rescue plan was fulfilled with Jesus Christ, this holy and human savior who is the king who will reign forever?
We'll finish up in these last two verses. Verses are first 36 through 38, three verses. What I love about what Gabriel does is Mary's trying to take this all in. And I can only imagine how difficult that must have been. And yet God goes ahead of Mary in such a powerful way to minister to her faith. Look at what Gabriel says in verse 36. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. By the way, that old age meant at least 60, if not older. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but if you're a 60 plus woman in here, could you imagine waking up pregnant tomorrow? (laughs) God goes ahead of Mary. And he says, listen, I know this is going to be hard for you to understand and believe. But let me give you some assurance. Even Elizabeth, your relative, who is beyond childbearing age, who is barren. She'd never had children before in her life. She now is in her sixth month, heading into her third trimester with child. Do you think that increased Mary's faith? God does these things in our lives. Biblically, we see this. Abraham gets this amazing promise from God. And then he comes to God and he goes, God, what good are your promises? I don't even have an heir. I don't even have a son. And Abraham is taken outside by God. And God says, Abraham, look at what? Look at the stars. Abraham, who made those? Who named each one? Who put every single one of those into place? If I did that, is it too much for me to do this in your life? As many as the stars, that's how many ancestors you will have. And Abraham believed, and his belief was counted to him as righteousness. His faith, his trust in God. When we think about Moses, Moses was to be the deliverer of God's people out of the hands of Pharaoh. And Moses goes, God, you got the wrong guy. I stutter all the time. I'm in my 80s now. I don't think this is. And God speaks to him from a burning bush and gives him signs and wonders, not as magic tricks, but to increase Moses's faith of Moses. If I can do this, I'm going to also do what I said I'm going to do. I'm going to deliver my people for I have heard their cry. Think about Elijah on Mount Carmel. Elijah versus 450 false prophets of Baal. And God consumes the sacrifice drenched in water, not only for Elijah, but for the people of Israel to know that he is God in order to grow and increase their faith. What has God through Jesus done in your life that you need the reminder of to continue to grow your faith? What has he brought you through? Where has he met you at? How has he delivered you? What is he still desiring to do in your life? You see, God often provides evidence of his power to grow our faith. He often provides evidence of his power to grow our faith. When we think about this Christmas story... When we think about the message that Gabriel gave, remember that this is to translate into our Christmas season. It's not just supposed to be a part of Sunday mornings. It's supposed to carry over. 
so that as we do enjoy the festivities of the holiday season or we're reminded of the hurt and pain that we feel missing certain people or going through certain things, we are to be reminded that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's rescue plan. We are to be reminded that he is both a holy savior who can rescue us because he's God and a human savior who fully relates to us because he has endured even more than what we have endured. And then lastly, that he is the king. He is the one we bow our knee to. It's not wrong to participate in all the Christmas fun, but don't bow your knee to the busyness of the season. Make time for the Lord. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless. Thank you.